Welcome to The Third Rail Entrepreneur, a podcast about enrichment. Enrichment of your mind, your relationships, your body, and ultimately your business via the entrepreneurial path. My name is Alistair MacDonald. Let's get started. Welcome back for part two of the long-term costs of solving short-term problems. In a previous conversation, we talked about the phenomenon of creative destruction and how vital it is to maintain the most one of the most valuable pieces of civilizational progress and growth, which is innovation. When we reward those that have been around the longest and give them money simply to keep their doors open, we directly create a perversion of both incentives and capital flows, taking it away from those that are trying to create the biggest long-term contribution via innovation to the broader societal expansion. This is the path that the United States government and central banks around the world are on, and they're making these decisions on your behalf. I talked about this two-part problem that the Federal Reserve and government and so forth are creating for us, and it will have pour-over effects into you, your business, and your life and family. And we'll get to that if you haven't already guessed how it ends. Creative destruction is one of the problems. When we kill creative destruction, we create perversion of incentives. We stifle incentive. There is another side of the trade here that is equally risky and dangerous. And that is, when the government or any benevolent power makes the decision to support one over the other, we fall into the trap of moral hazard. Imagine two banks, Bank A and Bank B. Bank A has been around for a long time. Bank A has decided that, being an independently owned business, they will take savings in from you, choose who to meter them out to, and lend them out in the form of mortgages or car loans or business loans, etc. Now, this is the depositor's money that Bank A is deciding to work with. So imagine this as two siloed banks. Bank A is choosing with its depositor's capital where to send the money. Now, they have to be very careful here because if it's their depositor's money, it is quite literally the strength of the bank itself that they're playing with every time they decide to lend money. So they want to lend money to Jack. But the truth is, Jack, upon further investigation and a full credit check and so forth, financial statement, is revealed to be a pretty sketchy character. Jill, on the other hand, has a very stable business, solid cash reserves, and buying this home seems like it's well within her financial cash flow and monthly expenses. Jill will be the one who qualifies for the mortgage. Jack will have to get his house in order before Bank A is willing to actually finance his operations. The bank, in turn, lends out this money to Jill at a 5% interest rate. They can then turn around and come back to the depositors and say, hey, those of you that are keeping your money in savings here, we can pay you 3%, let's say, or 2.5%. I, as the bank president, go to Jill and say, great, Jill, here's your 30-year loan at 5%. I keep 2.5% for effecting the transaction, and my depositors get a 2.5% yield on their money market held with me. I will do this because it is quite literally the survival of my business. It is the survival of my employee's income stream. It is the protection of my depositor's capital. I cannot take any risks that I'm not going to be compensated for, because if we go under, we go under, and every dollar is lost. If all I did 
was lend money to Jack, even at 10%, I would be choosing making decisions about risk on your behalf simply to profit myself. Now, down the street at Bank B, they have a different philosophy. They believe that they want to create as much money for their shareholders and their owners as they can. Jack, having been turned down by Bank A, goes down the street to Bank B, and he says, listen, those guys are a bunch of sticklers down the road there at Bank A. They don't want to lend me money for this home that I want to buy, and I came to you guys because I think you'll do it. Now, Bank B has a very different sense of risk assessment. If they faced the same risks that Bank A did, they would do pretty much the same thing. They would say, Jack, sorry, mate, you've got to go and get your house in order. We'd be happy to lend money to you as soon as you get your personal balance sheet and financial situation squared away. But they don't. Because in this case, Bank B is backed up by a governmental safety net. The governmental safety net says, hey, we'll call ourselves the FDIC, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. Isn't that interesting? The U.S. government has to use a corporation to support the bank. Nonetheless, they say, look, in our case, our depositors are guaranteed up to $250,000 per deposit. So, Jack, you are welcome to have the money. We're going to charge you 10%, 8%, let's say, to do it. Jack says, no problem, I can do it. Now, Jack knows that he can't do it. The bank knows he can't do it. But they lend him the money. They lend him your money, of course, because you've got money in both bank accounts. Now, I, as the bank manager of Bank B, say to Jack, this 8% loan, it's yours and it's good for 10 years, not 30, because you're a little questionable and we want to make sure that we've at least reduced the duration risk of our loan. Having taken 8% from Jack, I can now offer my depositors 4%. Heck, I can offer them 5 and I'm still making more money than Bank A, those crusty old guys down the road. Where do you think the money is going to go? It is going to pour in to Bank B. All of the depositors will realize that they can squeeze an extra 1 or 2 or effectively 30% more than they would at Bank A. So they all move their capital toward Bank B. Yet Bank B is the least qualified steward of capital. Bank B is doing this with someone else's money. This is moral hazard. Let's imagine that both of these banks are now backed, as they actually are, by the FDIC. The FDIC says, look, I'm going to take care of everybody up to 250000 Bank A says, no problem, we appreciate the guarantee, but we're still going to play it safe and keep doing what we've been doing for 100 years. Offering, in this case, through their standard philosophical approach toward risk management, they are still offering their shareholders and depositors 2.5%. Now, Bank B looks across the street and says, this is crazy. We've got so much more money that we've received from depositors down the road that we're going to start cranking on this. So they start looking for more and more jacks to lend money to. They take on more and more risk, knowing that their depositors are backed up by someone else. Before you know it, they've completely overextended themselves and the bank explodes. No problem for the bank manager, the bank owner, who's been paid on stock options and internal incentives according to the number of loans they sell. The bank manager disappears with a giant bag of cash and the money, the problems rather, get handed over to the FDIC, who use the reserves and annual subscription and fees and participation of Bank A to compensate Bank B for risks that they were not paying a price for. This 
is moral hazard. When one party is making the decision on how much and what sort of risk to take on, and another party is paying the price when it goes wrong. With the U.S. government's current supposedly stimulus programs being run the way they are, inherently chooses to support the weakest companies simply because they are the weakest companies. Since when is weakness a qualification for capital? Not in the, any free market that I know of. Would you lend your money to a business that you know cannot currently make its interest rate payments? Of course you wouldn't. Because you would pay a price for the risk that you have chosen to take. And you have decided that there is asymmetrical risk reward. Too much downside, zero upside. But when I, the benevolent overlord of the financial system in the United States, making the decisions with your taxpayer money, I will not pay a price for the risk I am taking on your behalf when I choose to support and bail out giant companies that would never otherwise still be in existence. Your risk, my decision. Moral hazard. This is happening at a massive scale. I mentioned in our last conversation that over 600 of some of the largest companies in the United States are in zombie status right now. These companies are one failed payment away from bankruptcy, one half a percent increase in interest rates away from complete annihilation. Yet their life support is being paid for by you and your children's future taxes. The solution to moral hazard is a very tricky one. Because it's essentially a matter of when does this end and who turns the lights off. There are companies in Japan that are now 30 years in of receiving this endless flow of effectively free credit to keep the lights on. This is turning them into de facto government businesses, much like utilities, except the only benefit you're getting is the opportunity to buy their products. Now, we know from our previous conversation about how creative destruction stimulates innovation, stifling creative destruction destroys innovation. This guarantees, or at least raises the odds, that you're going to end up having to buy the same quality and level of sophistication of products from the same providers because there is a ceiling stopping any new innovation coming through. So you get to pay, in the case of Japan, some of these businesses, for 30 years for a product that has barely improved at all over that time. How does this serve the collective well-being of the American and Western developed nations' societies? It doesn't. Jerome Powell, Ben Bernanke, Janet Yellen, Barack Obama, Donald Trump have paid zero personal price for the decisions they have made to allocate your money. The longer this goes on, it assures us of two things. The greater the assurance of these two things. The first is that when it ends, it ends badly. Only 18% of companies that move into a zombie state emerge as profitable enterprises within two years. 18%. So that's the first problem. When does it end and how? Who gets to make that decision? Which politician whether it is Jerome Powell or his or, her or 
uh, Janet Yellen or any of their successes, which one of these politicians or presidents or what have you is going to throw themselves on the grenade to say no more of this? They will have made a decision that will simply have revealed the inevitable rot inside the structure of the home. There's never just one cockroach, as they say. They will be the one to finally shine a light on the weaknesses and fragilities that this creates for the broader economy. But they will be remembered for the person that supposedly caused job losses. They didn't cause them. Those job losses have been waiting in the wings since COVID hit. So the two assurances we have, that is one, that when it ends, it's likely to end badly. When the ice breaks, it snaps and we fall through it. It doesn't bend and give us a chance to leave in time. But the second is that this will be paid for in the future. It has to be paid for. If these interest rates and interest payments are barely being covered or not being covered in the case of 20% of the Wilshire 3000, who is going to cover them and how? The answer is by taxes and from you. There is only one place that any government on earth gets its money. It doesn't create anything. It simply takes from one and allocates to the other. That's just how it is. No opinion required. When the outgoings reach a point that is large enough to cause a breakdown in the governmental system, there is only ever one solution. Raise taxes. Now, this has happened before, and it has happened in a similar economic environment. This is something that we cover extensively in our strategies and so forth inside our full cycle dentist training group. To give you a frame of reference, the most recent iteration of a stimulus bill, 2.3 trillion, and then apparently today's additional 900 billion, just the first stimulus package alone was three times the size of the entire New Deal. The entire New Deal, it was 300% the size in constant inflation adjusted dollars. Now, as with then, as now, this has to be paid for. What happened to tax rates over that time? From 1929 to 1939, long-term capital gains rates went from 14% to 24%, almost a 100% increase. The top marginal income tax bracket went from 24% to 64% in the space of one decade to support a supposed stimulus package. This is not a stimulus package. This is a support package. But that increase for the top marginal income tax bracket from 24 to 64%, likewise the increase of almost 100% in long-term capital gains, was to pay for a stimulus package that was one-third the size of the one we've already received. Where do you think rates are going to go? Where is this most likely to happen? Well, we just need to pay attention to political motivations. Politicians across the world, on all spectrums, all sides of the aisle, are always driven by the same internal personal desire. Increased authority, popularity, power, and control. That is quite literally how they are rewarded. When they stand up on the pulpit, they are trying to win more people's vote. That's it, constantly. It doesn't have to be bad, it just is. So if we look at that motivation to say that our job, or rather their job, is always supported and their power expanded by a greater and growing audience, it makes sense that they would speak to those of greatest numbers in the societal breakdown, in the kind of hierarchy of economic pyramid in, say, the United States. 
They're incentivized to speak to that vast bulk. Who is it that's going to be the majority? Well, as is always the case in every economic contraction, we end up with more people without and less people with less haves and more have-nots. If you were a politician and you wanted to speak to this, you knew that you needed to raise taxes for more of these stimulus bills because one of the things we should know by now is that very few governmental programs ever die. You know, I think we are still fighting the war on drugs, for example. We are still fighting the war on poverty to some degree. Obamacare or the the Affordable Health Care Act, we are four years into a new administration and it is alive and well as it always has been. These things don't go away. Typically, by the time somebody is used to receiving something, you have to wrest it away from their cold, dead fingers, to quote someone else. So where would you go to raise revenue if you were in charge? Well, you would go to the area of the people who have the, the least people who have the most capital. And where specifically does that sit? Well, quite obviously, capital gains and dividends, the two areas that are at really generational lows in their tax rates. This suggests that dividend taxes, taxes on dividends and capital gains are likely, especially long-term capital gains, to increase pretty significantly over the next decade, just as they did from 1929 to 1939. Past is always prologue to some degree or another. The sweeping decisions to stifle creative destruction and increase moral hazard that are being made by politicians around the world today will lead inevitably to a 2.0 of the same thing we saw in the last precedent of the Great Depression. Higher tax rates. You'll want to adjust your sale accordingly. That's it for this episode. Thanks for being here. Hey, there's only two things that you have in your life your time and your attention that you've given both to me for these few minutes of today means everything. Cheers.